Welcome to episode one of Explore History's The Tudors. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and in this episode we will be looking at the establishment of the Tudor dynasty. Henry VII gained his crown on Bosworth Field in 1485 in the battle that ended the Wars of the Roses. As first ruler of the Tudor dynasty, he shared the problems of his predecessors. He needed to unify a realm that had been torn apart through decades of conflict. He had to convince his subjects that he was entitled to the throne. He had to establish sound central government. This would be no easy task. How did the early Tudors, the two Henrys, Henry VII and Henry VIII, establish their authority and convince the nation that they were the legitimate rulers of the realm? With Henry on the throne, it seemed that the Civil War might continue. The Wars of the Roses was a dynastic struggle between two rival branches of the same family descended from Edward III, the Yorks and the Lancasters, the Tudors being a Welsh branch of the Lancasters. Henry had to fight to keep his throne as several Yorkist pretenders in 1487 and again in 1495 made a bid for the throne. In 1499, Henry had his Yorkist rivals tried for treason and executed, effectively putting an end to the Yorkist threat. There were other plots being hatched, particularly when he lay ill in bed, yet the, with the ease with which his young son Henry VIII succeeded him to the throne suggests that disorder following Richard III's death was at an end and that royal authority was restored. Like Edward IV and Richard III before him, Henry Tudor and his successors recognized that much of the Wars of the Roses was a result of an overly powerful nobility, a monarchy which had lost its political and financial independence. It was too reliant upon its subjects and had to cater to their interests instead of its own. Henry VII therefore began to re-establish the authority of the monarchy. He did this in two simple ways. First, he curbed the power of the nobility. And secondly, he focused on filling the royal treasury. Henry adopted a variety of means to curb the power of his nobles. Now this took great tact and ability, as many of these individuals were extremely powerful. You step on the wrong pair of toes, you could have plunged the kingdom back into civil war. Expansion of royal government during the early Middle Ages had led to a specialization, primarily to deal with finance and secretarial business. These departments, the Exchequer and Chancery, gradually moved out of court and acquired their own routines, but they remained under royal control. As barons became more powerful and more politically ambitious, they forced their own nominees into these offices and took control over much of the administration. Henry VII's success, in large part, was because he took control of this. He brought this back to the monarchy. He retook control of government, and he did this through what we can call the concept of the two rings of government. So think of a giant donut. The outer ring, controlled by the barons, the inner ring, the household offices, the wardrobe, or the chamber. And this bypassed all the old establishes offices and left them with little real power. In times of emergency, a determined king could govern through the household offices placing more control in the king's hands. Henry VII found that within his own household, he had an efficient governmental machine staffed by loyal, experienced followers. The center of royal government had always been the king's council, but from the early 14th century, the magnates had claimed larger and larger roles until they dominated the king's council completely. Their dominance of the council enabled them to press the king to accept whatever they wanted. A weak ruler was naturally going to give in, further increase the power of the nobility. 
By the time Edward IV came to the throne, the council was a large, aristocratic body functioning more or less independent of the crown. Henry would skillfully manipulate this council, restructuring it to better serve him and establish his authority. In his council, Henry included not just nobles, but also clerics and a large official element made up of lawyers and country gentlemen trained in estate management. Under Henry VII, there were still some powerful nobles on the council. After all, they were men of great influence and power. So, for example, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, he actually fought against Henry at Bosworth, but he was released from prison after three years, became one of Henry's leading counselors and most dependable soldiers. So Henry included nobles in the council, but he limited the number and he chose them carefully. He also made it policy to create as few peerages as possible, as this gave power to the nobility. This gave hereditary title, and this could be passed on to an heir. That heir might not be as cooperative. Instead, Henry rewarded his faithful servants by appointing them Knights of the Garter, a great honour, but not one that could pass on to their heirs. Henry also made sure that he had a large number of clerics on his council, and that they outnumbered the nobles. This was a big advantage as clerics were well-educated and could be rewarded for service with promotion within the church. Of course, this cost Henry nothing. It left no heirs with legitimate claim to either their wealth or their offices. But the really novel element of the council was the official element, as they did not belong to the great families that had controlled English life in the previous century. They were there for their experience and ability, and were trained to do their jobs, a distinct difference from the nobility. The king was at heart, at the heart of the council, and it was very much an extension of his personality. Councillors offered advice to the king on matters of policy. They framed letters, warrants, proclamations, and all other documents that were necessary to carry out the king's will. Henry was therefore intimately involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of the council, could ensure that it carried out his wishes, not that of his nobles. Another way in which Henry VII sought to extend royal authority was through the establishment of order, basically by maintaining the peace in his realm, which generally meant keeping the nobles from fighting each other. To do so would benefit the kingdom and it would limit the powers of the nobles. Now Henry did this by addressing the problem of retaining. Retaining refers to the wealthy class keeping a private force of military men. Um, and this was something which led to a great deal of disorder. Retaining was a necessary part of English society as the king depended upon these same retainers, these same military men for his army, and such a force could be used to keep the peace. The key was that they had to be used properly, and in the period leading up to the reign of Henry VII, this was rarely the case. How such a force was used depended primarily on the individual in charge, the noble who retained them. They were often overly ambitious and embroiled in feuds with their neighboring landowners. So Henry's aim was not to abolish retaining, as this would have been met with great resistance, but he wanted to make sure that it was used for the public good. A big step was taken in a statute of 1504, which required all those who had retainers to submit a list of names to the king and to obtain a license from him. This act did not end the practice of retaining, but it did bring it under royal control, provided future Tudor monarchs with a basis on which to build. So basically, the king now had a list of retainers, who had the most, and he could question, why do you need so many? And he would also, of course, draw income from that. 
Henry also attempted to restore order through a variety of other methods. A number of different tribunals were established, such as the Learned Council, a debt-collecting agency for the Crown that also undertook prosecutions in cases involving financial matters. This council also drew up bonds binding an individual to good behavior on the threat of a financial penalty. Such bonds were used on a grand scale to keep the chief men of the realm under respect. Basically, more than two-thirds of the English nobility were at the king's mercy this way. He put the England's nobility on probation. The penalties he imposed for antisocial behavior were substantial, raised money, and kept the peace. So, for example, the Earl of Northumberland and the Archbishop of York, whose retainers had clashed violently on several occasions, were both required to give bonds worth £2,000 to keep the peace. The borders of Wales and Scotland were also uh, very lawless areas and difficult to control, and this was something that Henry VII addressed. In order to bring peace to these areas, Henry gave his son, the young Prince Arthur, most of the crown's marcher lordship, as well as the Principality of Wales, making him the direct ruler over Wales and the surrounding area. A council was formed to aid Arthur in governing the region. In doing this, Henry was able to force the marcher lords, who up to this point functioned as semi-independent magnates, to acknowledge the authority of the crown. The north of England, where the great border families ruled, was also a difficult region to maintain some semblance of control. At the beginning of Henry's reign, the region slipped back into the control of the Percy family. But when the head of the family died, Henry himself stepped in and took over the guardianship of the family's estates, thereby becoming a northern magnate in his own right. A council was established to aid in controlling the region that provided the basis on which Henry VIII would establish a council of the north. Much of the achievement of reinstating the authority of the crown was due to Henry himself. Henry possessed a great deal of energy and determination. He was constantly on the move and ensured that order was maintained. But perhaps more importantly, he did not shrink from killing an enemy when it was required, but he was also happy to take money instead, and did this to build up the royal treasury. And this was the other key to his success. Finances. Like most people then and now, Henry had a great love of money and jewelry. He was smart enough to know that his predecessors had often been in a difficult situation because they were so poor. They had to rely on the goodwill of the nobility and the parliament, and money from these sources did not come without a price. In order for the monarchy to be on firmer ground, it was necessary for the royal coffers to be enriched. Henry therefore implemented important schemes that would both raise royal revenues and place control of the realm's finances in his hands. Much of the finances were transferred, so control came to the treasure of the chamber, which was in the inner circle, bypassing the exchequer. Henry paid particular attention to land revenues and made the royal estates the foundation of the king's wealth. In an act of parliament of 1486, he took back many of the lands that had fallen out of royal control over the course of the Civil War. He added to these lands by confiscating the estates of his enemies. More important were the incidents, which had to be paid every time a death occurred in a landowning family. If a tenant left no heir, the crown took charge of the estates. If an heir succeeded to the estate, the crown either made her pay for the freedom to choose a husband or married her off to the highest bidder. If the heir was a boy, he became a royal ward and the crown took charge of his estates until he came of age, or could sell off his guardianship to the highest bidder. Henry VII also increased customs duties and even dabbled in trade himself. 
We are told in 1505-06 he made 15,000 pounds from the sale of alum. That's about three and a half million pounds in today's money. In other words, Henry showed a willingness to make money from all possible sources of income available to him, including the most prosperous section of the population, the nobles. They were going to have to pay their share of the king's expenses. In doing so, he enriched the treasury immensely. Now, for extraordinary sums of money, Henry still had to look to Parliament, but he did so as rarely as possible. This was a great contrast to earlier monarchs. He also created stability through his foreign policy. His emphasis in foreign policy was simple, peace and saving money. One of the main reasons for the collapse of the medieval monarchy had been the enormous cost of the long war with France, the Hundred Years' War. Henry VII could not afford a war with France, yet he was expected to go to war. After all, these kind of actions were expected in medieval kingship. The opportunity showed itself when the King of France tried to annex the Duchy of Brittany. Henry sent a force. When it failed, he himself led an army, forced Charles VIII of France to sign a treaty, which not only bound him to refrain from supporting any pretenders to the English throne, but also required him to pay an annual pension to Henry himself. In other words, Henry avoided a costly war and at the same time brought money into the royal treasury. And he looked good in the process. He also established a good relationship with Spain through the marriage of his eldest son, Prince Arthur, to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of the King of Spain. When Arthur died a few months into the marriage, it was arranged that Henry's second son, who would become Henry VIII, would marry Catherine. Another alliance, and perhaps the most important of all, was designed to end the perpetual state of tension between Scotland and England. Henry VII married his daughter Margaret to James IV in 1503. This was an alliance which opened the door to the Union of the Crowns in 1603. At his death, Henry was rich, a significant change from the poverty most of his predecessors had found themselves in. Yet in many respects, his kingdom differed little from what it had been a few decades before. The council was still medieval in origin. The chamber of finance was similar. There were definitely signs that things were changing, that order had been established. Finances were in order and under more direct control of the king, and generally, the monarchy had been restored. His strengthening of the crown, his firm dealings with the feudal nobility, his development of a new office-holding elite, his alliance with the middle class and his benevolence towards Wales, all served to integrate the many different parts of the realm into one entity, one commonwealth. This process of consolidation, of nation-building, continued into the reign of Henry VIII, who benefited immensely from the foundation established by his father. Henry VIII would continue to consolidate his kingdom, to bring the outlying reaches of the kingdom under firmer control. But unlike his father, he would spend, and he would spend heavily. But in doing so, he would confirm the legitimacy of the Tudor dynasty and in the process begin the development of a strong sense of national identity in England. In 1509, when Henry VIII came to the throne, he was a young, brash, and determined individual that was aching to prove himself. He'd been variously described as young, virile, and handsome, covetous of honor and glory, hot-headed, vain, egotistical, strong, manly, and lucky, for he was inheriting his father's legacy. Henry came by such descriptions honestly, and much of his early career, and for that matter his kingdom, was shaped by his personality, his approach to kingship. 
During the first 20 years of his reign, Henry did little to add to or conserve what his father had worked so hard to attain. He married Catherine of Aragon in 1510, continuing a connection with Spain established by his father when his elder brother Arthur had been first wed to Catherine. Catherine bore him five children within the first five years, all of which died within two months. But in 1516, a healthy baby was delivered, Mary. But it became increasingly apparent that Catherine would have difficulty producing him a male heir. He ate, he drank, he went hunting, he caroused with a number of ladies at court, and left much of the kingdom's running to his most trusted advisor, Thomas Wolsey. Wolsey is one of the more interesting figures in the Tudor period. The son of an Ipswich butcher, he entered royal service in 1507 and quickly rose to prominence. By 1513, he was one of the leading counselors. He organized supplies and services for the French expedition. For the next 16 years, he all but ran the country. Henry always had the final say, but it was Wolsey who looked after the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. In doing so, he enriched himself immensely. He acquired power, wealth, and honors on an unprecedented scale. In 1514, he became the Archbishop of York. In 1515, he was made Lord Chancellor and therefore the head of the judicial system. At various times, he held the bishoprics of Bath and Wells, Durham, and Winchester, uh, creating the sin of plurality. In 1518, he was made a papal legate to the, the Pope's special representative, and this gave him almost dictatorial powers over the church. It's reckoned that his height have had a yearly income of about £35,000. That's about £80 million in, in today's money, which is similar to what Henry VIII was getting from crown lands. He had an enormous appetite for work and appears to have been faithful, uh, a faithful servant to the king. He worked well for Henry, who was, of course, less interested in the day-to-day running of his kingdom. He was responsible for foreign affairs, and it was Wolsey who organized the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520, very important and very lavish meeting between Henry and Francis I of France. Wolsey was also a buffer to the king, somebody that Henry could blame some of the decisions on, a buffer for Henry's own lifestyle, someone to look after things while he pursued his true interest, glory and war. Now, given Henry VIII's personality, it was inevitable that he would go to war and that war would play a prominent role in his reign. Henry was a bully full of testosterone. He was somebody who had a real sense of the codes of chivalry. He needed to prove himself to his people and to the other monarchs of Europe. He wanted to be involved in the affairs of Europe, and his dynasty was relatively new and therefore would face possible challenges. He therefore had many reasons why he should establish himself as a strong king, who needed to be reckoned with, somebody to be taken seriously. In 1513, he would go to war twice against the French and the Scots. It would have perhaps been easy to predict that Henry would go to war given his personality alone, and this certainly had much to do with it. He was a man's man, rough, tough, often bad-tempered, and full of himself. He loved sports and a good scrap. Yet war was serious business, could have dire consequences if you were on the wrong side of the battlefield. Henry did not necessarily need to go to war if he was to stay put, focus on the running of his kingdom like his father had done. However, if he was to be involved in the larger developments in European affairs, war would be difficult to avoid. Early in his reign, Henry would find ample opportunity to increase his kingdom's involvement in European struggles. 
His father-in-law, Ferdinand of Aragon, was embroiled in a battle over Navarre, a French possession straddling the Pyrenees, and he would welcome Henry's help. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, was also warring with Louis XII of France, and he would welcome the involvement of Henry in French affairs. Pope Julius II in Rome had also suffered at the hands of the French and would like English support. The point is that Henry could make a lot of influential friends by involving his kingdom in European affairs. Besides, it would be against the old enemy France. Early on, things were peaceful between France and England. Henry VII had signed a treaty with France in 1502, and Henry VIII renewed this in 1509. But France was an obvious target. France supported the Scots in the north. The French continuously threatened the English port of Calais. They threatened English shipping in the Channel. And they were hostile to the papacy, which at this stage Henry was still on good terms with. By 1511, Henry was ready to get involved in European affairs. He did so by first sending a force of 1,500 archers to aid Ferdinand in a war against the Moors. Other small-scale efforts to involve himself in Europe came to naught, and he soon came to realize in order to be successful to gain the recognition he craved, he would have to lead the army himself. He therefore began to plan a war against England's old enemy, France, the most powerful country in Europe. Despite great opposition to him leading the army, he was determined to go. It just made sense. Communications at this time were very slow. If he was there, he could easily dictate his wishes. There would be no misinterpretation of his instructions. But most important, he alone would gain the personal glory that it would bring. He would, however, need to justify such a war, and it would prove very difficult to convince his counselors that a war with France was necessary. In order to win the support of his counselors, Henry had to overcome two obstacles. First, he had to convince everyone that there was just cause. He did this by putting the blame on France. Henry sent an ambassador to Louis to warn him that unless he made peace with the Pope, on very difficult terms, he would have to face the consequences. When Louis brushed him off, the path was clear. He was now the Pope's ally against the excommunicated Louis. He had to convince his council that he should lead the army. All recognized that although the chance of him losing his life in battle was slight, there was a chance. The death of Henry could well have plunged England back into a civil war, the likes of the Wars of the Roses, and all wanted to avoid such strife. Polydore Virgil, an Italian priest living in England, tells us that Henry argued his case with great force and eloquence, and in the end his arguments won out. But perhaps the greatest problem Henry faced in waging a war was paying for it. Once his counselors had been convinced that a war was necessary, Parliament had to be convinced to raise the necessary money to finance the war. Parliament readily agreed to make £40,000 available, but this was just a small part of what was needed. The rest would have to be raised through taxation. A scheme was worked out which would see everyone from the lowliest commoner to the highest duke contribute to the campaign. Knights would contribute 30 shillings, a baron 40, earls 4 pounds, dukes 6 pounds, 13 shillings, 6 pence, Foreign merchants and other aliens were charged double rates. The poor in particular would have found this tax a substantial burden. Commoners worth more than two pounds but less than eight had to contribute one shilling. Now, this maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but it meant that your average servant or laborer was contributing a week's pay. This for a campaign which meant very little to them. When Henry finally got his wish and led his army to France, it seemed like God was smiling upon him. 
His army fought no pitch battle, and therefore he did not risk a true test of his forces, his ability as a commander. His primary victory, the Battle of the Spurs, was not even really a battle at all. It received its name from the speed with which the French fled from the English cavalry. Yet Henry would rank his victory right up there with Agincourt. When the, 15, when the 1513 campaign came to an end, Henry VIII claimed it to be a resounding success. In part, this was true. He'd captured two important French towns, won a victory at the Battle of the Spurs, and taken many French nobles prisoner. He achieved what he set out to do, gain fame for his growing ego. But all of this came with a price. His expenditure was incredible. He took 14 wagons of gold and two of silver with him. He spent a fortune on clothes, took many fine jewels with him, presented the Emperor Maximilian with one as a gift. He gave gifts to many others before leaving Calais for England. And this was not even to mention the cost of the army itself. The result was great debt for England. Secondly, England really did not gain much from this campaign. The towns captured were more of a burden. They were costly to maintain, and the money could have been better spent by fortifying Calais. Henry claimed victory, but the real winner was the Emperor Maximilian. He played Henry's game, letting him fight his battles, gain some fame and fortune, but in the end he was little more than a pawn in a much larger political game where he would never be more than a minor player. It was the other battle of 1513 which was really significant and tells us a great deal about Henry. While Henry was invading France, the Scots had been busy preparing for war. While in France, Henry was presented with a letter from James IV asking that he, quote, desist from further invasion and utter destruction of our brother and cousin, the Most Christian King, to whom we are abounded and obliged for mutual invasions and actual war, certifying you we will take part in defense of our brother and cousin, the Most Christian King. We will do what thing we trust may cause you to desist from pursuit of him. Henry's reply was predictable. He lost his temper, bellowing out, I am the very owner of Scotland. He holdeth it of me by homage. At Flodden, Henry's army, led by the Earl of Surrey, gave the Scots one of their worst defeats in the nation's history. In a single afternoon, as many as 10,000 men died, including the flower of the Scots nobility and the king himself. The impact was enormous. It created a power vacuum in Scotland, which led to civil war. Yet this victory meant much less to Henry VIII than his less-than-stellar performance in France. The reasons for this lay in what Henry hoped to achieve. He had not been the one to win the victory at Flodden, and he therefore played down the conflict, barely recognizing its significance. Instead, he lavished praise upon his supposed exploits in France. After all, he was out to make a name for himself. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, that Henry VIII benefited immensely from the stability and resources established by his father. In many ways, Henry tried to look back on the on the sound ideas and good policy of his father, his emphasis was on restraint and on direct... Um, and I totally missed this up. In many ways, Henry... Stop. In many ways, Henry turned his back on the sound ideas and good policies of his father, his emphasis on restraint and direct involvement in ministering the kingdom. This would have a negative effect on the kingdom and threatened to undo much of what Henry VII had achieved. Yet Henry VIII's actions also brought England from periphery to center stage. He began the long road towards making England 
a major player in Europe, and as we will see, left few in England questioning the strength and legitimacy of the Tudor dynasty.